Hey everyone, welcome to episode 112 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's guest is landscape photographer and epic videographer Justin Majeski. Justin is based in Reno, Nevada and produces incredible commercial videos and landscape photographs. Just a warning, there is some profanity in this week's show. In this episode of the podcast, Justin and I covered a lot of great topics, including his journey into photography, social media woes, what sells, going to and photographing Burning Man, the difference in approach between videos and stills, advice for people looking to get into video production, pre-visualized versus reactive photography, and his thoughts on the new Fuji GFX 100 100 megapixel medium format camera. This week on Patreon, Justin and I answer the question, does gear make the photograph? Okay, let's get to the show. Justin Majeski, thanks so much for coming on to F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Yeah, this is a, we've been trying to get this in the books for a while now, so I'm super excited to finally get to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really glad it all finally worked out, and uh, you know, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, dude. I feel like I've been uh, following you on social media for several years now, and I, I was trying to think about this today, like how well, when did I start getting interested in your work and I just don't remember, but I feel like I've been following your work forever. <laughs> yeah. I've kind of been involved in like the landscape and time-lapse uh, community for, man, I don't even remember maybe like the early 2000s. Um, it's been probably about, I don't know, 10 years now. Yeah. And yeah, I just kind of, I'm one of those guys that's kind of like behind the scenes and uh, you hear from me sometimes and not so much others. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I was um I was stalking your your Facebook business page today, the uh, Majeski Visuals, and uh, I, I I did take note that you do post very diligently, like once a day. Like I, I was very impressed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I <laughs> I found um you know as far as social media is concerned that you know once in the morning and then once in the evening. Um, kind of gives me the best reach as far as uh, you know, social media is 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 concerned, and that's mostly through Instagram. Um, and I just kind of have my Instagram feed, my Facebook page, so I only have to make oh, yeah. one post, you know. So it just makes it easier on me. But yeah, uh, totally. I found I've got the most like return on investment by doing two a day, and um, yeah, that's that's basically all I've come up with so far. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I used to be pretty diligent about it and I feel like I'm like twice a month now on my business page. I don't know, I just get really discouraged by the reach and so I just I was like this is a waste of time. So Yeah, yeah, the reach, man, I I was talking to someone about this the other day like it used to be so easy to make a like a time-lapse film go viral or you know, have like a really rad image go like kind of viral online and you get this all yeah. this like amazing organic reach and like I know some of my friends, like, I think you had, um, Sean on the, on the, on the podcast and he was talking about this, about, you know, how it used to be so easy to build a huge following very quick. And, uh, it just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And it's kind of unfortunate. It really is. It's, um, kind of depressing. I, I don't know. 
social media is depressing in general, but <laughs> yeah. I, I remember the day where, you know, you could post like a pretty solid image and you'd get a lot of reach organically. You'd get a lot of interest in your stuff. Like people would actually reach out to you to buy prints. And, and now it's just like ghost townville. Like I posted something today where I was announcing a, uh, a giveaway. Like I want to give you free photos and I've had zero comments and like 29 likes and I have like <laughs> 7,000 fans. So it's right. Like, really? Yeah. Like what percentage is actually reaching people? And it's, it's funny Crazy. to me that Facebook and Instagram have done this model where you have to pay to play. And if you look at other business models, like for instance, like uh, YouTube, where they pay you to create content yeah. um, and, and it's beneficial to them to increase your reach right? Uh, because they're getting more ad placements and things like that. So uh, it, it's really just interesting to me how Facebook and Instagram has gone that way. And it just seems like, you know, from a, from an outside perspective that it would make more sense to, you know, give these content creators a shoulder to stand on in a sense, you know, and, and, and pimp them out uh, to the greater masses because that would just help your business. But yeah, it just doesn't seem to go that way anymore. And it's, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that they've kind of lumped um, all businesses, quote unquote, into the same category because, you know, I totally understand them wanting to throttle posts by like Oreo or Ford or GM or, you know, these big multinational corporations where they want to get thousands and thousands of dollars of advertising. But like, we're the people that are making people want to actually come to the platform to begin with. So it's, it's just, yeah, it is interesting that they don't see it that way. Yeah. I I just really don't know what to make of it. I mean, your point being that, you know, Oreo and Ford and stuff should be throttled. I totally agree with that. Like they should have to pay to play because they're huge multinational businesses. But, you know, the little guys that are creating cool content, they should really help promote us and they don't. So, you know, uh, me personally, I've really started to kind of hammer down and uh, I've created a YouTube page and then just kind of sharing things that I've learned along the way. And, uh, you know, gear reviews, things like that. I, I'm, I'm like a, I'm a gear nerd. I don't really think the camera makes the, 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 the image, but, um, I just love cameras. I love technology. So, <laughs> so just sharing that with people and actually like making some kind of money from doing that is, yeah. um, really interesting. It's just a completely different business model than, you know, has been portrayed by Facebook and Instagram. Well, well, Justin, before we dive into the, the real meat of the podcast, um, I thought I would give you the opportunity to maybe tell us who the heck you are. Oh man, who am I? I don't, <laughs> I don't know myself really. I, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm from the East Coast originally, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in a small town, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's like a uh, Civil War town, and not much going on. I just knew at a young age I needed to get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I grew up snowboarding and skateboarding and being a punk ass. So, uh, for me, it was all about moving out West. And it was just something like, you know, for maybe like 14, 15 years old, like that was what I wanted to do. Like I was going to move out West. I was going to snowboard and I was going to be a punk ass and just do my thing. And, uh, at about, I think about 20 years old, I finally made it happen. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, my wife, my now wife and I, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. We moved out to Lake Tahoe, California. Uh, my cousin Christy kind of, uh, planted that seed and, uh, had us move out here. Um, we found some jobs and just fell in love with the area. It's just so gorgeous. And the people are so nice. And 
you know, from there is when I started really shooting landscape photography and time-lapse photography because as a young kid growing up, I, I did shoot photography. My grandfather was um, the photographer for the Baltimore Zoo and things like that. And so oh, cool. he had he had like a dark room in his basement. So I got to like, at a very young age, I was re- like exposed to this stuff. And um, he actually gave me his Pentax 6.7 and that's kind of what I started shooting on and um, just fell in love with the art of it. And when I moved out West, uh, at the time when I moved to Tahoe, there was like two landscape photographers in the area that actually produced any kind of like decent work. So I was like, man, I know, like I see with my eyes stuff that's better than that's being produced by like the top dudes. So like, I, maybe I should take a crack at this and, you know, <laughs> landscape photography just naturally occurred, uh, just because I was surrounded by beauty and that kind of snowballed into time-lapse photography. And then that snowballed into like doing video production and, you know, back in the day, like we were saying, like I made a couple small viral films locally, time-lapse films, and then businesses started uh, approaching me about doing videos for them. And it just, it's just been this endless snowball from something that started as like a small hobby to now it's my full-time career. That's awesome. So how long have you been doing uh, photography full-time? Uh, let's see, full-time... <laughs> Maybe about ten years now. Uh, I worked for a couple of businesses before that, like some production companies and stuff, as like the editor and uh, you know doing all kinds of stuff for them. But um, on my own, probably almost ten years now. That's awesome. Well, congratulations! You're living living the dream, right? Yeah, it's funny. Like, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, right? <laughs> I, I I love it. Like, I wouldn't give it up for the world. But you know, it's I talk to some of my friends about this and. Uh, you know, when you, when you make like your passion, your career, yeah, uh, there's like lots of ups and downs that come with that. So you, you end up like really loving it some days and really fucking hating it other days. Right. And when you hate it, it, it's almost like even worse because it's like, oh my God, like this is something I was supposed to really like. And now I fucking hate my life doing this. <laughs> <laughs> like, what am I doing? You know? And uh, maybe I would be better just like flipping burgers or something. I don't know. But yeah it's, it, yeah, it's funny how that works because I remember a um, couple a couple of months ago I got hired to do some like family portraits and uh, you know it's not definitely not my specialty and I don't advertise that I do it but when people reach out I'm like yeah sure I'll do that and uh, I remember like the day before just like thinking oh this is gonna suck so bad <laughs> and then when I went and did it it was actually a lot of fun but right I've had, I've, I've had some interactions like that too like. I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I don't advertise doing like headshots or anything like that, but uh, sometimes I'll make exceptions for like friends or like, you know, friends of friends and just yeah. go out and hang out for the day and make a little bit of money. And, you know, it just, it's, it's kind of fun. It, it pays for itself. Do you ever shoot weddings? I have shot weddings. I don't um, currently advertise it, but uh, I'd say like twice a year I get asked, you know, Hey, can you shoot my wedding? And, yeah, dude, if, if it's someone I don't know, like, I'm very honest with them. Like, you need to pay me a lot of money. And it's not because I'm good at it. It's because that's the only way I'm going to do it for you because it's right. a lot of stress. And, and and like, I'm so afraid that it's like I'm going to mess it up. And, and I've always done a good job at it, but it's so much more stressful than shooting landscape, you know? Oh, totally. Like, especially 
like in the particular case of a wedding is like you know there's no there's no do-overs <laughs> yeah, for the first kiss like <laughs> if, if your fucking camera doesn't focus on them during the first kiss you're fucked like <laughs> exactly you know and they don't care that it was a gear malfunction or whatever but you know you deal with bridezillas and oh, for yeah. me like you know i used to help some of my friends shoot weddings I, i've never actually taken on a wedding like completely myself but um, oh man it's I mean, it is definitely a fun challenge. I've shot a couple of smaller weddings, like maybe, I don't know, like 20, 30, 40 people. And uh, it was a lot of fun. The first, dude, so speaking of gear, the first wedding I ever shot um, was for my wife's brother. And it was back in like 2011. I actually had only owned my camera for like my first camera for like, I don't know couple months maybe it wasn't what camera was it it was a nikon d7000 ah and i had the kit lens the 18 to 105 and it was an indoor wedding in a church so it was really dark and i'm like oh dude like oh this is not gonna work (laughs) (laughs) you know like everything's like blurry and like i'm pumping the iso up i mean fortunately i knew like I knew what I was doing, but I quickly realized like, oh, my gear is not up for this at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's those humbling moments that kind of ground you. <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, it, it turned out okay, but it was, yeah. I quickly realized like, oh, if I want to do this again, I need to invest in some better lenses for sure. Right. Some strobes, like the whole deal. Yeah. yeah at least, at least like a light stand and a, couple like a you know an external flash that would be nice right right yeah yeah it's it's funny man like uh, there's so many like points in my career where i've had humbling moments like that <laughs> where you're like oh my god like maybe maybe i'm not made out for this <laughs> what's interesting though is um i don't know about you but i've always been worried you know people are gonna be like oh these are terrible i want to reshoot and i've always gotten you know, oh, yeah, these are great. Thank you. I love them. I've never had anyone say like, these are terrible. I'm not going to pay you. Like, I don't know. I've right. always, that's what you worry about. I find that it's pretty easy to impress <laughs> mo- most people. Uh, most people don't know about all the technical aspects and yeah. why is that image grainy that, you know, most people don't care. Like, you know, oh, there's grandma and she's awesome. And I'm glad she, we have a photo of her. Like they don't, you know, they don't care if the color temperature is off or something like that. Right. Like, you know, and it, it kind of also, <laughs> I say this sometimes it kind of relates back to landscape photography. Like it does. That's a good for call. me. Yeah. For me, it's like, uh, yeah, like that image is nice. And like, it's really easy to impress your family like your grandmother i always say it's like it's really imp- <laughs> really easy to impress your mom she's gonna love every image you ever produce but it's really hard to impress people that uh are actually in the career field and actually do this day to day and like i think that's what we should all be striving for is like pushing the envelope and like doing really cool things that no one's seen before although it's interesting about that I've, i i kind of feel like <sighs> Like the general public has a pretty low bar of what's cool, you know? Right. Yeah. Because I have I can remember I've shown people some pretty shitty photos and they're like, that's amazing. And, right. And it's like, and I look back on that and I'm like, that was not amazing at all, but they still liked it. That's really fascinating. Totally. It's uh, it's something we've learned. Um, I'm part of a, a, a gallery in uh, Tahoe. They actually own three galleries, the Eatington Galleries. And uh, Abe Blair is part of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what we've come to learn is 
what you think is good is not necessarily what people are going to buy. Right. So, and it's funny because you're making a business model out of this. You're making a gallery. You want to sell images. And as an artist, you want to put out like your coolest work that you think is like super fucking rad. Right. And then, you know, they don't care that it's like Milky Way and Moon set all at the perfect timing. And like, they're like, oh, that image is dark. I want this like midday shot of the blue water that anyone can do. Like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing as an artist now? Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. And uh, like I said, it's humbling. And it's one of those things like, I think if you want to like sell a product, uh, you sh- it, it, it's going to pay dividends for you to like go out on the street and like show people and just ask them like, would you buy this? Or like show them, <laughs> show them a bluebird day of a scene that everyone's seen that's pretty average that you took. And then show them like one of your absolute favorite shots of your favorite moments and ask them which one they'd rather buy. Oh yeah, and, and it would be, it'll be the midday so, one. Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's it's. I remember. Um, so I have this. Uh, it's kind of a digression, but I have this article on my old mountaineering website that I wrote in 2012, where I featured like the, at the time, uh, the top 25 landscape photographers in Colorado. Right. And over the years, I've had several photographers ask me to feature them on that blog post because it ranks really high on Google for some reason. Okay. So like if you Google top landscape photographers, Colorado, it's like the number one result every time. I never forget it. This guy reached out to me and he, he emailed me. He was like, I want to be featured on your blog. And I'm surprised that I haven't been yet. Um, I'm the highest paid or no, what was it? I've made more money than any other photographer in Colorado selling my photos, all these rich people buy my prints. I'm the top grossing photographer at all these art fairs, all these art shows, um, blah, blah. Like he just like was just talking about himself like crazy. I'd never heard of him before. I was like, diarrhea of the mouth. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I bet this dude's stuff is sick. So I went to his site and it was all like bluebird average stuff that you could take with a cell phone. Right. Right. And I was just blown away. Like I didn't, I believe him. He probably is the most well yeah. well paid dude because he's figured out how, what people buy. Right, right. <laughs> no, it's totally true, man. Like, uh, what what we've also learned in Tahoe is that people want images that um, they can relate to in a sense that okay, I went to Emerald Bay or I went to this beach. I want an image from that beach, right. or I want an image from Emerald Bay. And they don't care. They don't care if it's an epic sunset. They don't care if it's midday. They just want an image from where they stood. Right, and as a photographer, that's so draining, like to go to the same spot that, you know, 500 million people have taken a cell phone image from. But I, you know, it's funny, like you, you, you have a business model and you want to make money and that's what people want. So you got to give them what they want. Yeah. It's fascinating because most of my photography is uh, from places that a lot of people have never been or can't go to. Cause it's, those are just places that speak to me and they're special to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm shooting sunrise on the top of a 13,800 foot mountain that like only 40 people climb a year, you know, which is, which is super rad, which is super rad, but like, and it's a sick photo, but no one's going to buy it. Cause right. Cause they've never no, been no there. Relates. Yeah. They can't relate to it at all. And it's, 
it's super discouraging in some ways. <laughs> <It> totally is. <laughs> oh man, we've we've had so many conversations. Abe Blair and I. Abe, Abe is like you've had him on the podcast before. He's one of my like probably my best friend basically, and cool. we 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 kind of like piggyback on one another, and um, we're basically both in the same boat of like chasing after like pre-visualized images that we kind of come up with um, on our own, and you know he'll have an idea, and like I'll just go with him to just tag along because you know as you know like you know going to like high mountain tops and like stuff like it, it just makes sense to bring an extra person like just for safety reasons oh 100 percent. just company and we enjoy each other's company and so you know we've been chasing like a lot of these images around the lake tahoe region and uh yeah it's uh yeah i man. saw i saw uh like in the last two months i think i've seen three or four shots from both of you guys from hikes and that you guys have done in the snow, like, oh, there's like six feet of snow and we snowshoot up to this really cool spot that no one's been to before. And, yeah, yeah. and it's like a really cool shot, but I'm thinking to myself at like same vein, I'm like, yeah, I bet no one has seen that before. And it's probably only connecting to someone who's actually been, which is probably only you guys. Right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's funny because like, while we like do produce the images that people want to buy because obviously we want to make money but uh <laughs> as artists you get like star like like creatively starved by doing that so yeah. Abe and I have kind of been we've kind of become known in Tahoe as like the guys who are really kind of pushing I guess pushing the envelope of like going to like these like remote mountain peaks around the around the lake and shooting down onto the lake at like sunset sunrise milky way all that whole thing um and, and yeah, it takes all kinds of twists and turns and we have to use split boards to access these areas and right. ropes and just, and it's, it's just fun. Like, honestly, like even if I would not even shoot a single photo, like I would still go do this stuff regardless. Sure. And I'm sure you, I'm sure you can relate. Like you, you do a lot of hiking yourself, so I'm sure. Oh, totally. Even if you didn't take a camera, like you would still go do that stuff. Yeah, totally. I, I remember uh, a couple, couple weeks ago. Abe, uh, I think I think maybe you were with him. He posted a photo of the Milky Way, where like I think you or someone else was pointing a light through a tree, and it was like this yeah. cool diffused light, and then like yeah. the Milky Way above, and it was like a, obviously totally pre-visualized, and it was really cool. Well, the the, the funny thing about that one is it it, it wasn't pre-visual pre-visualized, which is like totally <laughs> right opposite on. of the way we operate. But it, it was kind of funny because. You know, he hits me up that evening. Well, I actually hit him up and I was like, I want to go shoot this photo down at the beach of the Milky Way, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, cool, let's do it. And he's like, before that, I want to stop at this place that I saw as I was driving home the other day. And, uh, he, you know, he sees this place that, that was off the side of the road. We've had a, like a record snow year in Tahoe and there's yeah. just this huge snow melt um, lake that forms every year and then drains by the end of by the end of the summer. Um, you know, and it's like waist deep maybe. And so he's like, I want to go check it out. I'm like, sweet, let's go. So we go and check it out at night. We're like hiking in with just like headlamps and we show up and there's like really beautiful low level fog just right on top of the water. And there was frogs everywhere. And like the frogs were so loud that it was like deafening. We couldn't even hear each other. It was really kind of eerie. Um, but he's like, I brought all these lights and I'm like, cool, let's backlight this. So we kind of like collaborated and like, he jumped in with his waiters and got some really cool shots. That was a fun night. It was like one of those things like, you know, our our typical MO is to like pre-visualize a shot and go chase that. But like in this case, it was just like, yeah, let's see if this works. And it really worked out nice. Yeah, I think there's I think there's really uh, value and a lot of fun in both approaches because 
there's something to be said for that kind of serendipitous discovery of kind of creative minds, like, you know, going to a place you've never been before, seeing what's there and trying to make something of it. Like those are the moments for me that are very exciting, but also I've also found that, uh, you know, pre-visualizing a scene that you've kind of studied on Google Earth and like, you know what the conditions are going to be like and you've kind of waited like, oh, I only want to shoot it if these conditions are checked off on a list. Right. And and then you finally go pull it off and and maybe it's taken you like 25 attempts, but you finally nailed it. Like that's some of the most fun you can have in landscape photography, I think. Man, it's just, it's like, as an artist, like, it's so fulfilling to like, have an idea in your head, you plan it on Google Earth, you know exactly the time of night you need to be standing on top of this random ass mountain. (laughs) (laughs) The Milky Way is just right, and the moon is setting just right and hitting the, whatever it is. Uh, And then you go and it's there and and, like, it happens right in front of you and you capture it just right. Like, you got all the technical aspects figured out. Uh, For me, that's just like, it just like feels so rewarding. I don't really know how to describe it, but it just like, it feels like, I don't know, a grand, grand slam or something. I don't really know how to refer to like sports, but yeah. <laughs> it, it just feels really good. And, you know, like you said, there's like, there's two different aspects of photography, really. It's kind of just like going out and like seeing what the hell you create, which is a lot, you know, that's a blast. But for me, like what is the most fulfilling is like the pre-visualized aspect of landscape photography. So I'm guessing you've had a lot of moments where you've pre-visualized something and you go and it just didn't work. Uh, so first of all, yes, it's yes, <laughs> yes. Uh. totally. You know, and, and when I first started chasing this, uh, that happened a lot more than it does now sure. because I've learned how to anticipate and how to like judge weather and how to judge, you know, the stars and like the whole thing. So like, now Abe and I really only go when we're like pretty freaking sure that it's going to work out. Yeah. Um, so like I would say our success rate together is like abnormally high. But then again, like we're not out there all the time shooting. So if we were out there all the time, I'm sure there'd be a lot more failures. But when I first started, yeah, there was a lot of failures. But from the failures you learn. So, you know, it's never a complete failure. You're always like building and learning and getting better. Yeah. I remember uh, when I first moved to Portland, Oregon, I uh, was really excited to shoot uh, a, a particular meteor shower. And I can't remember which meteor shower it was. I want to say it was one in like, it wasn't the Perseids in August, but it was another one before that um, in April, May or June, something like that. And uh, I had planned it all out. The weather was looking okay. And so I was like, screw it, I'm going to do it. But it required like a four mile hike up a mountain. To, to shoot this scene and I drive up, it was basically on the opposite side of, um, or opposite of Mount hood. So on this mountain called Tom, Dick and Harry, if people are in the Northwest, they probably know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but it's, um, like there's a classic shot from there from like Ryan Dyer and Alex Noriega. Like it's a pretty classic sh- spot, but I wanted, I wanted to shoot it with this meteor shower cause I had never seen right. that done before. Right. And at the time I was kind of, kind of known for meteor showers and like, I wanted to kind of do that there. So anyway, I hike up there and like I get above a certain elevation where the, where like there's less trees. And of course it's just hundred percent fog, like 0% (laughs) visibility. And I think that happened to me like three times in a row in that exact spot. Oh man. It was like the most Northwest. (laughs) Oh, it's so discouraging, but man, that's, 
that's what happens, you know, like you got to kind of take the good with the bad, you know? Right. And that's, you know, when you actually succeed, it makes it feel that much better that like, okay, I put in all this effort and work on the front end and failed. And like, now I I have it. It's done. It's right here in my hand. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really good, right? It feels really good. Yeah. Because I remember uh, a few months after that, I, another, uh, I was going to go shoot the meteor shower or go shoot the Milky Way uh, on the Oregon coast um, by, uh, let's see here. Uh, Hug Hug Point uh, uh, State Park, which is kind of by Cannon Beach, right? And uh, I drove. I was driving out there, and about three quarters of the way there, I hit just massive fog. And I was like, <laughs> "Not again! Are you serious?" <laughs> and I just got super lucky. I hit it, and the fog cleared, and I got a really cool shot of the Milky Way. But I was so like, I almost turned around. And I was like, "Not again!" Come on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes it just pays off to like persevere and keep going. It does. Yeah. And that's what, you know, will make or break you as a, like a, a landscape photographer, I think. Like, I don't know. That's just my opinion. No, I agree. So one of, one of the things I was really curious to talk to you about, I know you, you, you shoot a lot at Burning Man. Yeah. And uh, I've personally never been to Burning Man. Um, it looks like a crazy, amazing experience. Um, so first maybe like for people that are like, what the heck is Burning Man? Tell us what the heck Burning Man is. And then, uh, like tell us a little bit, like, what is it like to actually photograph that, that thing? Yeah. So <laughs> man, <laughs> we're opening up a big can of worms here. Um, I know. <laughs> so it, it, I've heard stories, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. You ask a thousand people what Burning Man is, you'll get a thousand different answers. So it's, 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 it, it basically it's a, it's a, like a festival in the desert, in the Black Rock Desert, which is about two hours north of Reno, Nevada. Um, it's just a big open area and, oh man, it's, it's just a big open free expression of the human spirit, I think was maybe a decent way to describe it. Yeah. How many um, people go every year? Uh, this, well, last year was about 70,000. Uh, the last I heard they were trying to open it up to about a hundred thousand people. I don't know if they're going to get the permits to do that this year, maybe the following, but and how long is it? Uh, it's seven days total for okay. the actual event, but a lot of people will show up like a month before, uh, theme camps and stuff will show up a month before and start setting up, uh, they put like a big trash fence perimeter in and start installing some of the artwork and, um, there's just so many levels to it. And, uh, Burning Man is all provided by the people who attend the event. So, <laughs> um, the only thing that's actually, uh, provided by the Burning Man organization is, um, the man itself. <clears throat> um, and I think they also fund the temple and then they also fund all the, like the, the necessary things for the city. So it's, it's an actual city that, gets put into place for seven days <laughs> and then torn back down again. Um, and like I said, they install the trash fence and just uh, provide like EMTs and um, police and all kinds of things like that. So how do they, uh, how do they fund all that? Uh, through a lot of donations um, and also through ticket sales. So oh, okay. it's, okay. it's, it's rather expensive to actually go. Like I think per ticket, it's almost, almost 500 bucks this year per okay. person. That makes sense though. Yeah, but you know, it's a 7-day event. So like if you think of a normal festival, it's like 2 days or whatever, like and you spend, you know, $400, yeah, or exactly. $200 or whatever, like um it's I, I think it's worth it. Like it's something my wife and I have gone for 5 years now. Well, this will be our 5th year if we get tickets this year. And um 
yeah, it's 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 so indescribable. It's like this like crazy event where just people just spend so much money making really cool artwork and um there's really like crazy music and like art cars driving around and lights and just people like fully expressing themselves and just doing whatever the hell they want really. I remember um I talked to Aaron Feinberg about about Burning Man and he was telling me that uh, one of the economies, quote unquote, is people creating something for other people at at Burning Man. Like in his case, he like a lot of people dress up and they get it creating crazy costumes, and that's like their kind of contribution to the event, I guess. Right. But then other people like I'm going to take your photos of your crazy costume and I'm going to give them to you at the end. Yes. So so it's like this really cool kind of sub economy that kind of just pops up for seven days too right yeah so uh, the only things that you can actually pay for there are uh ice or (laughs) (laughs) and um believe it or not coffee at center camp which i've never actually done myself um so everything else that the camps will provide you uh is is all free basically like it's just gifting economy so basically like a lot of camps will set up and they'll do like i don't know pancakes uh, on Wednesday at 9 a.m. Show up at 9 a.m. at this camp and you'll get free pancakes for breakfast. Um, <laughs> there's just so many levels of that that get kind of fucking insane, basically. <laughs> like, <there's, laughs> like I, I like to tell a lot of people, like, there's everything you would ever want at Burning Man and there's everything you would never want at Burning Man. <laughs> and, and, and in a way, that's what makes it fun is like, you know, it's your choice. Like, you choose how to uh, spend your week there, basically. And... Uh, so as a, yeah. as a photographer, are you bringing your best equipment? And if so, like, how are you protecting that stuff? Because it's because <laughs> it's basically a desert with a shit ton of sand and wind, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Basically, it's it's an old uh, uh, lake bed that has since kind of like boiled off, and so the the ground is completely flat. It's like being on the moon, basically. Like it's kind of trippy at night, but. Um, yeah, so as far as gear goes, like last year I took a, a Fuji GFX 50, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably not the camera you really want to take. But, um, you know, as long as it's not like a windy, gnarly day out, like you can take whatever you want out there and you sure, know, it'll sure. be fine. But, the, the, you know, when it's like really nasty out, which is actually when I like I prefer to shoot there, I, I prefer to have like the kicked up dust and everything because it makes this really cool, unique atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I usually just bring... Um, just those little like plastic things you can get at the camera store that kind of cinch around the lens and go over the camera and uh, there's oh, yeah, a little hole sure. for the EVF. I call them camera condoms. I don't know what they're really called. I love uh, that term. I'm going to start using that because I have one. Yeah. <laughs> I shoot Sony. So like if it's raining or if it's might rain or if it's a waterfall, I've got the camera condom on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There should be a brand. Maybe we should incorporate and do this. Dude, let's do it. Condomcameras.com. No, <laughs> Cameracondoms.com. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if that's taken yet. It probably is. Everything's taken nowadays. But um, yeah, I mean, basically everything you take there gets covered in dust and it's like really fine dust. So it's like it gets everywhere, every fucking where. It, it's the, it, it gets in every crack and crevice. It's like really kind of gnarly stuff too. Like once it gets wet, it becomes this like pasty gnar- gnarly stuff so like a few years ago it like rained on the playa and people got stuck and it was just this big mess and i've got some good news for you justin yeah camera condoms.com is not taken 
Wow. I think we have a business venture ahead of us, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, now someone's going to take this when they listen to the podcast. All right, well, we have time. We have time to, to secure it before it goes we do. live. Yeah. We'll, we'll hold this one. Yeah. All right. Well, stay tuned for more from Justin from his adventures in Burning Man. Now a word with Jason Matias. Well, well, welcome back, Jason Matias. He was on the show back on episode 79 to tell us all about the art of selling art. And Jason has recently put together a really fantastic guide for photographers and artists uh, called, uh, it's basically a giveaway guide. And I've been following it. Uh, I think, Jason, you used it to make almost $10,000 for your photography business last year. Is that right? Yeah. So at the, once a year, I do a giveaway. And uh, last year, I gave away four posters and used this launch process that I put together in this guide and sold something like 120 posters um, after, you know, giving away a few pieces of art. So the guide, just like the rest of the art of selling art, is just a a breakdown of what I did to make that happen. That's awesome. And. And you're 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 launching a kind of standalone uh, masterclass for people that want to use uh, the giveaway guide to launch launch their own giveaway to make a ton of money. Can you tell us what that will be like? Yeah, so I don't want to go ahead and say a ton of money because <laughs> yeah, like I think giveaways like when an artist gives, he should it should make money. A giveaway shouldn't only be about collecting a few social media followers and a few emails. Um, there's a huge missing step that artists skip that pretty much virtually every other business you see when they do a giveaway have this backbone set up to make money or to turn it into a profitable endeavor. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I did. That's what I what I created is a process to go over that. It's 11 modules mm-hmm. that take you from starting an offer to to all the way to the debrief at the end of your giveaway. Mm-hmm. But um, so what I'm doing to launch it is a challenge launch. And that is a five-day launch that will bring all the core pieces to making your giveaway start, if you wanted to do a giveaway, uh, all the core pieces you need to, to launch it. In five days, you'll be ready to launch your own giveaway. And that's a, it's an introduction to all of the content that's in the course. And um, it starts in, well, I guess the week after this goes live, yeah. um, it'll be a five-day challenge launch. And that's just $15 to join. That's sweet. And normally to get the art of selling art, it's like what, $500 for a lifetime membership. So yeah, the art of selling art is $500 um, for a lifetime membership and the complete guide to giveaways is its own mini course. So if you're in the art of selling art already, there's like 80 some members. Um, they already have access to this, but the complete guide you can get on its own, which is 175. And that's all of the the project calendar and the setting up many chat and email automation and Facebook marketing and all that stuff, as well as setting up sales pages, all that's in the guide. It's all one unit. That that's just one seventy five. And if someone was interested in in joining the the five day uh, class, what where can they find out more about that? But yeah, there'll be a link associated with your post that'll lead you to a a sign up page, and then it's fifteen dollars, and you'll get into um, a very temporary private group for the launch and i'll do one video a day uh one lesson a day for five days to get you set up the challenge launch will be creating your sales page creating your offer um setting up the giveaway itself and launching awesome we'll definitely put that in the liner notes for people to check out 
I'm excited for you, Jason. Thanks for coming back onto the show to tell us about what you got going on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I know you sent me your landing page so um, or your sales page. So after we get off this call, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Talk to you later, man. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Jason, for coming back on the show to tell us about the art of selling out. Now back to Justin Majeski. Talk about Burning Man. But yeah, so like anyways, like everything gets like really covered in dust no matter what you do, no matter how you protect it. So, you know, I just take like a Pelican case and just store everything in the Pelican and cinch it shut when I'm not using it just to minimize the amount of dust that's hitting everything. But at the, you know, at the end of the the week, I'll take it home and just kind of clean it off and wipe it down and everything comes off. It's fine. Yeah. I've been to a music festival before and there was a lot of theft. Is that a problem at Burning Man? To my knowledge, no. Um, so <laughs> it's so funny. Like a lot of people call Burning Man like a like a music festival, and it's just it's maybe like one small part of the actual puzzle, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's just so many layers to the whole thing. It's just, I mean, literally, we could talk about this all night long. So like, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of misconceptions about Burning Man too. Like a lot of people just like I think the like typical meme that you hear about Burning Man is is like this like you know, like hippie infused, like orgy in the desert yeah. and everyone's all dirty and like, <laughs> like everyone's fucking each other and yeah, it's just like no rules, just do whatever the fuck you want. But you know, that's not really the way it is. Like, like I said, like you choose your own path through burning man. Hmm. And if you want to just like chill the whole time and do nothing, you can do that. If you want to go out to all the raging parties, you do that. If you, I mean, there's people that go and like, don't do any drugs at all. And like, there's like tons of sober people there. There's like all walks of life. There's like old, young. I see kids. I see, you know, really attractive people. Like there's lots of like really attractive people there. It's just like a really cool event. And like everyone in a sense is like really nice. Like that's the one thing that really stood out to me my first time going was just every single person you meet is in a really good mood and is really happy to meet you. And everyone hugs. And it's like this like (laughs) totally like super like at first it's like a little weird because it's like, man, like in my normal life, like you know, Jane that I see at the supermarket, she's not going to come hug me. But like, you know, when you see Jane on the playa, like she, she's going to come give you a hug. And it's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like this total mind fuck of like, what is going on? But, uh, you know, towards the end of the week, you're like, man, why can't, why can't reality just be like, always like this? Like everyone's just in such a good mood here. And it's just so removed from the norm that oh, interesting. I can sit here and try and explain it to you all day, but like, y- you just have to go and try it. Like, even if you don't think Burning Man's for you, like there's something there for you. So what's the uh, what's the interest for the uh, landscape photographer or videographer? Yeah, so basically all the artwork. I mean, my thing is I really love to shoot the artwork, and there's a lot of it. There's you know hundreds of installations out on the the deep playa, hmm. and um, basically the cool thing about shooting that artwork is that after the week at the end of the week they they burn most of it so oh wow so like it exists for seven days they you know they bring all the pieces out to the playa they build it for the event seven days go by they burn it at the end of the seven days and it's gone forever that doesn't exist anymore it only exists in your photographs and in a sense like that to me is really fucking awesome yeah no doubt i know uh when i was talking to aaron he he was gonna try to do like a art installation and it sounds like that's a whole arduous process have you tried to pursue doing an art installation as a photographer 
I haven't uh, pursued doing an art installation myself. I have a few ideas I'd like to kind of do, but yeah. the issue the the issue is that it, it just takes a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to make it happen. So while it's not impossible, um, I tip my hat to the people who do make it happen because it is quite a task. <laughs> yeah, it sounds epic. <laughs> yeah, you have to like rally people around you to like show up and build the thing and then bring it out there. You have to provide, you know, all the stuff to bring it out and then the stuff to build it on site and then you burn it and you have to like, it's just, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty big undertaking. And from everyone that I know that has built artwork out there and burned it, um, it's been like an amazing process like in their life, like an amazing experience for their life. Yeah. What are, what are some of your uh, fondest moments or funniest stories from Burning Man? Uh, it's just, okay. I got a pretty good one for you. So, um burning man is just an endless stream of random shit happening to you every day (laughs) just just the most random shit you'll ever imagine like think about the most random thing you can think of and it it gets more random than that so basically one day my wife and i um we were going to the temple we try and visit the temple every year so what is the what is the temple so the temple at burning man is uh a completely different space from the rest of Burning Man. So Burning Man as in a whole is like this like upbeat, fun, like uh celebration of life. And then the temple is built each year by a new artist most of the time. Um, and they takes on many different shapes and sizes. And basically it's a place for people to uh worship to people for people to leave notes to loved ones that have passed like it's just full of you know uh big poster boards of like people who have died that like go every year and like this year they couldn't go and there's like all these like notes on the wall just like people pouring their heart out it's just like i i can't help it but go in there when i go in there every single time i cry like i i just can't help it like it's just so such an overwhelming space um, I'm not like a religious person myself, but like, I, I feel like when I go into this temple, I have this like visceral reaction. That's like, uh, it's something that I've never really felt before in my life until I went to burning man. And <clears throat> so it's, it's completely different than the rest of the playa. You walk into this structure and it's just, you know, there's people in there like playing music and people just cr- like crying and embracing one another. And it's like this like whole space to kind of, uh, worship and like let go and like people are just doing all kinds of shit in there. There's so many levels to it that it's like impossible to describe. Um, but I think <clears throat> I think that in a nutshell that's pretty good. I mean, it's it's like this place of worship and uh, remembrance. And then at the end of the at the end of the event, they burn the whole building, including like all the poster boards and all the mm. memorabilia and p- things that people have left, and people like tie shoes and hang them up like. And it's, you know, it's the city's structure. So they get to, you know, we get to like put whatever we want on it. You can write anything. You can put whatever you want on there. Um, It's, it's totally free expression. So, you know, it's, it's this like somber place, but it's like a necessary place to visit while you're there. Mm. So my, you know, (laughs) continuing on with my story, um, my wife and I went in there, we paid our respects, we did our thing, we wrote our notes um, and, you know, we're leaving and like, we're like kind of somber and like a little down, a little, little sad. Um, and we're just kind of walking along back towards camp and we start kind of looking around, like around us. And we notice like 
there's like a hundred people dressed like a rabbit. And then we look to the left and there's like a hundred people dressed as carrots. And then like everyone, like people are holding signs, like in the, in the carrot picket line, they're all like, you know, make, make America V8 again. And like, (laughs) it's like super funny stuff. And like, we just like walked into the middle of this like carrots versus rabbits war. And like all of a sudden they just like go charge and they like run towards one another and start like fake battling. And like, I don't know. It was just like this funny, like flip of somber to like extreme, like just laughter, just like crying and laughter. Uh, It's probably one of my like favorite moments. Like there's so many, like I could just talk all night about this stuff, but um, it's just like endless randomness. But like from a photographic perspective, that kind of fuels creativity. Like every time I come back from Burning Man, I'm like, I feel like I'm reset and like ready to like create again and like do things. And uh, it's just, I I love it, man. It's every year that I can go, like as long as I can physically go there, I'm going to go there. Hmm. Have you ever been to Meow Wolf in Santa Fe? I've never been to there. No, it's, it sounds like Burning Man is like Meow Wolf on raging steroids, but Malwolf is pretty cool. It's like a huge art installation with all kinds of levels and craziness, but uh, not not quite to the same level of Burning Man, obviously. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's some never, parallels. Probably are. Yeah, I, I've never been to that event in particular, but like Burning Man is so far beyond anything that exists. Like, like I think Elon Musk kind of put it put it the best way that could be put. He's like. He, he said, imagine the most, cr- like the craziest party you've ever been to in LA or New York or whatever. He's like, multiply, multiply that by a million and you still don't even begin to touch what Burning Man is. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's so true because like people go all out for this event. Like it's a, it's a huge deal to a lot of people. And um, just one instance in particular, like there's this, there's this company, uh, not company. There's there's this guy named Pablo, and uh, he's a, a wealthy millionaire, multimillionaire, and he has decided to create this art car called the Mayan art car, and it's become my favorite art car basically. And it's like, I don't know, he's probably spent two or three million dollars building this thing. Like it is unbelievably impressive. It is huge. They need like people on the playa like directing it and like moving traffic and like to just move it is a whole process. Wow. And then they'll drive it out to the the deep playa which is like mostly like empty and they'll just set up and they like they have like a million dollar sound system on this thing. <laughs> they have yeah, you, like you stand in front of these speakers and like you feel this stuff like go through your heart. Like it's like I don't know how to describe it. Like it is the most amazingly like it's like very loud but it's also ultra clean. So it's like just an unbelievable sound system and they've got like lasers that do all kinds of crazy shit. Like they have a guy on there that like his sole job is to run the lasers. Like he's like, he's like specifically licensed to run these lasers because the lasers are so powerful that they can take down like airplanes and shit. Like, <laughs> like just unbelievable level levels that go into this thing. And it, it, that's just one small piece of the puzzle. Like there's just so many other people that do like similar stuff. And it's just like, everyone goes all out for these seven days. And it's like just a total expression of like free will and life. And it's just, unbelievable place to be and to photograph it is like just kind of like the cherry on top for me it's just something i love to do but you know a lot of times i'll leave my camera at at camp and just go and and like enjoy for myself what uh if someone was to go for the first time like how should they prepare to go oh that's a loaded question so basically burning man has 10 principles and one of those principles is radical self uh 
self-reliance. So basically like everything that you're going to need to live in the desert for seven days, you need to bring with you. Hmm. And if you don't know how to live in the desert for seven days, uh, I would suggest not coming. <laughs> so basically like our first couple of years, we, we went and like, we stayed in tents and that's no good. We, we learned because like, you know, you want to go out at night because that's when all the lights are and all the parties and all the fun, like there's stuff happening all around, like all times in the day, but like at night for us was like the most fun part. Mm -hmm. So we would go, you know, hang out for the whole night, like come back, like, you know, three in the morning or whatever, four in the morning and try and get some sleep. And, you know, by six 30 in the morning, the sun's up and it's like blaring into your tent and baking you out. And it's just like this miserable experience based on just like your sleeping pattern. So like this year I went and like built like this like thing called a yurt, which is just basically made out of like foam insulation paneling that you can get from Home Depot. And it's like the structure that kind of just, I've built it so it just kind of folds out, but it's like ultra insulating from the UV rays of the sun. And then we bring a generator and an AC unit and we pump AC into the yurt. So like, you know, when we come back at four in the morning and the sun's about to rise in an hour, you know, we can sleep and get like some good rest. Nice. <laughs> so like, you know, it took us four years to figure it out, but here we are. So would you say that if someone wants to go to the, for the first time, they should maybe try to try to like link it, link up with some people that have been before? And I would suggest if it's your first time to maybe get involved with a theme camp. Um, there's tons of them. There's probably a thousand theme camps. I don't know. Um, but basically, the part of going when you go to Burning Man, it's not that you should go to experience. You should go and also participate. That's a big part of Burning Man. Is everyone that goes should also participate in some way. And uh, being part of a theme camp is a really good way to do that. Most theme camps will provide you. Well, I don't want to say most, but some theme camps will provide you with uh, places to sleep, and they'll provide you with uh, food and everything you need. But you need to also exchange in you know, in exchange, you're, you're working for the theme camp. So like you're running if, like, if they have a bar, for instance, like you run the bar two nights, you know, out of the week or w whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so many ways to like interact and like be part of like the whole thing. And it's just so fun. Like everyone that goes is also like, not only a, like they're, you're, you're a full participant, right? Like not only are you there to experience, but you're there to like give back as well. And that's one of the other really fun aspects of it. That sounds like a, totally amazing experience <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'm a i'm as most of my friends know i'm a big proponent of burning man like i i just love it like i went there with an open mind my first year i didn't really know what to expect and it ended up exceeding my expectations by a lot and i i feel a lot of people when they go for the first time i you know i talk to people who are are virgins every year and uh, they're every single one of them would just say the same thing. Like it is crazier and more awesome than I ever expected. And I think I think that's kind of what I hope people take away from it is like, you know, whatever your preconceived notion of Burning Man is, it is not that when you go there. <laughs> that's funny. I I feel like that's a good way to approach landscape photography too, because I I found when I have when I go into something with preconceived notion, it ends up disappointing me quite a bit. Totally. Yeah. And that's one thing too, like we were talking about the pre-visualized images. Uh, one thing Abe and I talk about quite a lot is like, you have an idea in your head of like what this image will look like, but when you actually go and shoot it, it's never exactly like you expect it to be. There's always something a little different than you expected, or like maybe even something even better than you expected, which is great as well. Uh, at that point, you just say, I always meant to do that from the very beginning. <laughs> right. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about 
was uh, kind of the difference in your approach to shooting video and to shooting stills, because I think there's there's a lot of similarities, but I think there's also some stark differences. And, and I don't shoot a lot of video myself, so I was curious kind of how do you approach each of those art forms differently? Right. Um, so for me in particular, like video is probably 95% of my income. Uh, I, I barely make anything from doing landscape photography, maybe, maybe 5%, and that's probably generous. Um, but it is something I would like to pursue to become more of a percentage of my income. Uh, and I've slowly started to figure out ways to do that. But, uh, as far as like, uh, being like, you know, artistic, like, uh, for me in like landscape, it's all about the pre-visualized, but when it comes to video and you're working with clients and there's so many different layers to it, you have to like come up with a script and come up with a treatment and make sure the client is okay with that. And then you go and shoot it. And then you're in the edit phase. It's just a lot more levels to video than like photography. Um, and for the right person, like that's, that's, that's great. Like a, a lot of people really enjoy the process and I really do enjoy the process as well. But, um, I think I enjoy I think I enjoy like landscape photography most. <laughs> it's hard to explain. Like I, I just, I love video, but it's also like, there's so many more levels that go into it than photography. And uh, that can be draining as well. Can you, can you give us some examples? Uh, like I was saying about like the treatments and like, what do you mean, back by, what do you mean by treatments? Uh, so a treatment is just like, this video is going to look like this. This is going to be the theme. This is going to be the 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 look. Like we're going to shoot it with this lens and like this, um, th- like we want this feeling to come across. Like once the once the final edit is done, like color balance even probably. Yeah, like the color look. Like it's like how the piece should eventually come out is basically a treatment. Um, and then it never actually comes out exactly like that. Like it's always give and take once it actually gets shot and but starts in the edit phase. I'm guessing you probably want to have that pre-visualized as well from a video perspective. Yeah, that helps a lot, you know, like being able to, uh, that's always just kind of come naturally to me, like kind of like pre-visualizing what I expect it and want it to look like. So I think that's probably why I've done pretty well in the video world is just like, uh, just being able to come up with a concept and like execute. Um, a lot of people just can't even do that and there's nothing wrong with that, but, um, I think that's kind of what set me apart. Mm -hmm. What, what kind of advice would you have for somebody who, who's wanting to get into that, that market? I would say just kind of jump in. I mean, the best way to learn is to, uh, do it and fail and learn from your mistakes. <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. Like I still make mistakes every day. I mean, it's just a learning experience. Like, and one thing I would also suggest uh, to new people coming in is um, find someone who you really respect in the industry and ask them for some kind of like uh, internship, um, apprenticeship kind of deal, and simply just ask and learn from someone who's already made all the mistakes. That's like it's so helpful that I can't even like begin to explain um, just like small things that, that, that you, you would miss. You don't know what you don't know. Right. So uh, when it comes to video, just having someone to refer back to and ask questions uh, and get feedback immediately. uh, That's, that's huge. Mm -hmm. What's, what's harder in your opinion, uh, doing the artistic and technical side of videography or the business side? 
uh, I would say by far the business side is the hardest part because I I feel like I can produce the imagery just fine. Like I, I have no problem with that. But you know, as far as like marketing yourself, meeting people, going out there, putting your name out there, um, that's really hard for for me, anyways. Like some people, it comes really naturally. Like super extroverted people, like it's just no big deal. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, it's 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 always been a difficult uh, part of the process. Is just like, well, how do you tell this person that like you're the shit and like you should make this video for them like you know without sounding like some like arrogant bastard like it's it's a it's kind of a battle but um what i've learned over time is just simply just just ask just talk to people say hey i really like your brand like i think my like the way that i shoot and edit like matches your brand and i'd love to work together like if there's anything that comes up like let's let's do it and um more times than not that's worked out in my favor i'm assuming you're not just Fire, firing off like hundreds of emails and hoping that something sticks like what's your approach to cultivating those relationships so like you said like relationships are literally everything in the video and photo world the best way that i've found to do it is sometimes i i'll send emails but i i find that that has a very low uh percentage of 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 actually working mm-hmm. out the the best way that i've 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 found to like be successful is to actually um, approach businesses yourself or meet people in organic ways, like through a friend at the bar. It's like, yeah. you know, you're, you're at the friend with John and he introduces you to uh, James and James works for a blah, blah, blah company. And, oh, well, hey, I do video. Like, let's maybe collaborate on something. Like people want to work with people who they're familiar mm-hmm. with. So just sending a random email uh, is is probably not going to work out. Right. No, I agree. It's, I always say it's like all about who you know or who you blow. <laughs> well depends on how good at, good you are at that i guess yeah i need to practice up i guess right right that's what i've, <laughs> what I've heard um <laughs> switching gears a little bit uh sure let's talk i don't we don't do this on the podcast a lot but i i know you recently have been talking a lot about the the fuji gfx 100 and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we don't talk a lot, a lot about gear on the podcast, but uh, I think it's a pretty interesting uh, piece of equipment that's coming onto the marketplace that is quite different than what we're used to seeing, not only from Fuji, but in general. Like, there's a lot different about that camera. And uh, I was curious kind of what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, so... My opinion probably doesn't mirror everyone's opinion because everyone's needs are different. But uh, in my opinion, I think that the Fuji GFX 100 is probably the most interesting camera made to date. So I've been involved with Fuji uh, for a while now. I've helped my friend Karen Hutton with a lot of different videos. She's a she's actually a Fuji sponsored shooter, and we did uh, I did all the video for the GFX uh, 50 launch video with her. So we got this, you know, pre-production GFX 50S and like we were shooting on it and uh, it was all fucked up. Like the firmware was not finalized and like it would just like brick every like <laughs> three shots and <laughs> the white balance would be like super weird like after you shoot a shot. But I, I I saw the potential at that point for this to be something really special. And uh, basically at the that point in time, like the 50 megapixel sensor wasn't too far off the A7R Mark II. You know, there's only eight megapixels difference there. Right. And, you know, the R2 was backside illuminated. The 50 was not. So, like, 
uh, I took both of those cameras actually to Burning Man and I shot some comparison images. And I, I honestly, I didn't notice any difference in dynamic range and resolution really. Um, so for me, it was like, okay, this is a really interesting system. And the glass was really nice, uh, but it wasn't quite there yet for me to like really jump ship. So um, I saw Sony Alpha rumors a few months back releasing like, okay, this is the next medium format sensors coming from Sony. And it's probably going to end up in, in the GFX. It was a 100 megapixel backside illuminated sensor, which is basically what we've all been waiting for is like this like high density megapixel sensor that is a large format sensor. It's bigger than full frame. Like 1.7 times bigger than full frame. So you get this like fully immersive field of view, which for me, I really enjoy. Like, like I said, like in the beginning of the podcast, like my grandfather gave me his Pentax 6.7 um, when I was young and I shot on that a lot. And just looking through that, like, you know, the prism and into the viewfinder and just like seeing that like world that existed through those lenses uh, to me was like so addicting and like really, really interesting. And I always wanted to like emulate that in my like digital photography. So for me, that, that time is finally here and we're shooting like ultra high resolution imagery, imagery with it. It's good in low light. You can shoot astrophotography with it. And, uh, the real breakthrough I think with this camera is the stabilized sensor. So, uh, the, the issue with like high density megapixel, uh, sensors in the past was that yeah, like you have all this resolution, but you need to put it on a stabilized platform in order to get the most out of that mm -hmm. resolution. And so, you know, running a gunning handheld was never really a viable option. So like, yeah, you have this $40,000 camera, but you're stuck to a tripod. What, you know, if you're not like just a commercial like photographer, what the fuck uses that mm -hmm. for most people? Um, so, you know, Fuji really circumvented this issue by creating the five axis stabilization um, which to me is the major breakthrough here is it's it's not just that this camera has a 100 megapixel sensor which is obviously really nice for doing large prints but it's in a package that is ultra usable to all people that shoot all kinds of different work so uh to me i think they just like they, they hit a home run i mean their glass is really really good it's going to give you the most of that sensor they can definitely resolve over 100 megapixels and it's just edge to edge perfectness um and you know if you want to do a 40 by 60 it's i think it's only like a 2x scale up so you're gonna get really nice 40 by 60 images which um like i said i don't do a lot of printing but a lot of the prints that i do sell mm -hmm. are larger because um i don't really bother with the eight by people ask me for eight by tens and it just it just doesn't pencil out for me to like take the time to send in the file and do all the work to make like you know 15 bucks or 20 bucks, whatever the hell it is so for me it's like i only do like bigger prints for some people and um i'd like to do more of that in the future so just having this camera system to basically be able to shoot images that you'll be able to use for the rest of your life um it's just i think it's it's a major breakthrough in my opinion what is the aspect ratio of that of that sensor because i know you know like full frame is like two by three what what is the medium format is it like a four by five or I'm not exactly sure to be honest with you. Um, it's more square than a than a than a full frame. Right. It's like a it's like a square format. I don't know what the exact aspect aspect ratio is. Cool. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting system. I know I know a couple of aerial photographers who use the the GFX fifty, uh, but I've kind of like you, you know, I shoot the A seven R two, and I just I just don't see it being that big of a difference personally. So um, right, like double that i mean that's a big deal you know 
totally yeah like you know once you start shooting 100 megapixels like you notice a difference like there, <laughs> yeah there's a lot more resolution to work with there and i was looking at some prelimin preliminary like you know nerdy sensor charts and they're comparing it to the a7r mark iii and the d850 and all that stuff and like it's a full stop better um at almost every iso than those cameras and you're getting twice as much res- resolution so to me it's a <laughs> it's a home run i think like i think the only thing holding the system back currently is a fast wide angle lens sure. um currently it's like a 20 three f4 and i think lawa is making a 17 f4 um and that's pretty good like you'd still probably get a pretty usable image from that but um right equivalent you know equivalents like uh f-stop is probably like a three two or something like that so like to full frame um but i'm not sure what light transmission is like that's the real judge is like how much light is lost from the front of the lens to the back of the mm-hmm. lens um so when it's come when it comes to like landscape you know, astrophotography where you're just like milking the most that you can get out of this sensor, um, I don't know yet. I have one coming. Uh, I I know some Fuji reps, and as soon as the final firmware is released, she's gonna send me a, a unit to test. Nice. And I'll let you know more when I get the get through that. That's cool. Uh, so you said Sony's manufacturing the sensors. Does that mean we can expect to see? A similar sensor in Sony body soon? Uh, so Sony has said publicly multiple times that they are not interested in getting into the full frame or the medium format market. Uh, they believe that they can make some major progress in the full frame market. Uh, and I, I would imagine that that's good for them because there's just a, a bigger market for full frame cameras than there are medium format cameras. Yeah, I agree. You know, at yeah. the end of the day, they're trying to make money. So you know, they invested $9 billion a few, a few years ago into their like silicone production, uh, industry. So I, you know, I, we have the A7S Mark III coming. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've been a pretty loud proponent of, I think this, this camera and sensor combination is going to be some really progressive stuff. Um, I think Sony's going to continue to innovate in the full frame market. Uh, I don't see them jumping into the medium format anytime soon. I would, it's maybe a few years, but, um, you know, they've developed like a 60 megapixel full frame sensor that's backside illuminated. I'm sure that one's like really nice. Um, and I think, I think <laughs> this might come to bite me in the ass, but I think the A7S three is going to be a 36 megapixel, uh, low light camera. Oh God. I mean, that would be amazing, right? Like, and I'm pretty sure they're going to put 8K video recording capabilities, which for most people, they don't, they don't give a shit. But uh, from just like a nerdy tech aspect, I think that's like super impressive to have a low light, high density megapixel camera uh, in your hands that can shoot like full cinema quality 8K video. <laughs> and also like, you know, it, the, the sensor that I think is going to go in it, I've, I've, I've nerded out on this stuff quite a bit. And uh it's like three times more sensitive than the original a7s and it has like three times more make more pixels so i don't know you know <laughs> I'm, I'm just basing this off of rumors i've i've seen and uh some investigation i've done on my own uh but i feel like pretty confident that this this might happen and, and like honestly like if you look at the market like this is the only way that sony's actually gonna kind of upset the market is to come out with this camera and um i think by the end of summer we'll have some kind of announcement from them I mean, a 36 megapixel A7S would be insanity. <laughs> That'd be wonderful, right? For like astrophotography, couple that with like the Sigma 14, like, oh my goodness. 
Yeah, I've got the uh, the Leoa 15 F2, which I think is like that? pretty decent lens. <laughs> I've never shot on it. Is it is it pretty good in the corners and stuff? Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, it's yeah. it's pretty small and compact too, which is why I like I like it over like the Sigma 14. You know, right, right, right. Yeah, the Sigma 14 is a beast, but you know, it's what is it? 1.3 stops faster than f2.8. So yeah, it's like a half uh, stop. You know, better than F2. Abe shoots on that for astrophotography, and then I shoot next to him with my F2.8 1635G Master, and I notice a massive difference in our image files. Like, he's getting so much more oh, for sure. light to the sensor, and that just, at the end of the day, like, you're, you're, you're pixel pinching here. Like, you're trying to just milk the most that you can out of these sensors. Like, they're still not fully there yet to, like, create an ultra-clean image, ultra-high ISOs, but I think... You know, hopefully that new A7S will will be the the jam. It's come a long way since the days of the uh, the Nikon D90, though. <laughs> yes, it has. Which <laughs> was not that long ago. Maybe you would have been good with your f4 lenses or whatever you were shooting on back then. Right. I mean, it's not really been that long, so it's pretty interesting to see how quickly technology has shifted. It's fun, man. Like technology tends to progress faster than humans are willing to accept that progression. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that way. And I've seen a lot of pushback, like I posted online quite a bit about, you know, rumors and stuff of the new A7S and it's going to be 8K and all this stuff. And they're like, but they, you know, they can't even do 4K at 60 frames a second without overheating the sensor. Well, like, yeah, like with, with old tech, like I, like the engineers at Sony are probably like way smarter than you and I, like, I'm sure they figure that shit out by now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure, I mean, everything is doable. It just is how much does it cost? Right. There's a cost to, to benefit ratio. And like, I mean, are you going to, you, you probably, they probably could have easily sold an A7R 3.5 that can do everything, but it would have cost like $10,000 and they knew that no one would buy it. Right. Exactly. And that's, there's a lot of like, di- like, like some like, I don't know. I'm a I'm a kind of a physics nerd, and there's a lot of physics that go in with the sensors and like, you know, dissipating heat and like all that stuff. And, you know the engineers at Sony are not stupid. Like they're going to figure that stuff out. It's just an engineering problem. It's not a. It's not like a barrier of physical, like uh, realistic <laughs> abilities. Like it, it, it's just a. It's just an engineering problem, and they're going to figure that out. And you know we're going to have a ultra low light, thirty six megapixel sensor here soon enough. I think. Oh, that's going to be nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of crazy. Remember, I don't know if you ever saw like a few. And like a few years ago, they create like Sony released this weird ass video about Starvis technology. I did not uh, see that. It's like this weird ass video. Like <clears throat> everyone's like, "What the fuck?" And uh, everyone kind of brushed it off as like being whatever. But like, if you look into that technology, it's actually really interesting. Like they, so like the major breakthrough recently has been like the backside illuminated sensors, where they like push the photodiodes up closer to like the actual lenses and then move the the circuitry. It used to be the circuitry was in front of the photodiode, which makes no sense to me. Like you have all this light coming in and then it hits the circuitry, bounces all around, and then finally it's the photodiode. So they basically took that circuitry and moved it to the backside of the photodiode. So there's nothing in the way. So you're getting like, you know, all that light hitting this, hitting the, what, where you want it to hit basically so you're getting like i think it's like two a 2x increase in like low light sensitivity Jeez. so like set like as far as starvis is concerned it's even more than that 
and then uh, they like have I, I don't know all the technical aspects of Starvis, but I know that they pushed it even closer and have created these micro lenses on the sensor that uh, amplifies the amount of light that's actually hitting the sensor. And then not only that, <clears throat> there's also um, uh, it also images in near infrared, which uh, gives you much higher signal to noise ratio in uh, ultra low light conditions. So basically, I, I think they're going to come out with a sensor that is so far advanced from like the norm of what people are used to that me talking about it before it's released, people think I'm fucking crazy. And I, and like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't like, uh, I, I don't feel bad about that because like, I think, I think this is coming and like, it's, it's just the natural progression of things. Well, I remember, uh, when the, the Nikon D800 came out, you know, like 36 megapixels and that was like what 2010 2011 yeah i mean people were like what 36 megapixels like that's insane yeah you know and it wasn't that long ago well it's interesting with sony in particular because uh basically sony has been able to innovate simply because they're producing um, lots of sensors for smartphones. So right. a lot of their R&D goes into developing these like tiny ass sensors that go in your smartphone and they're like ultra good in low light and like all this like super small, like pixel size and all this stuff. So Sony is, is better than Canon in a sense because they have all this funding to develop these sensors. And then finally, like all they have to do after it's been developed and all the R&D is done and it's put into a smartphone is just simply scale that technology up to full frame. Uh, and that's one place where Canon falls short is because they only develop sensors for the cameras that they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's why we've seen Sony excel so much more than Canon in sensor technology. Right. Now that makes total sense. I mean, they've diversified. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big nerd on this stuff. I, I love this stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Justin, we're winding down. Who should our listeners want to hear on the podcast, in your opinion? Um, so I've got a buddy named Nick Cahill. He does a lot of like adventure photography and has some pretty interesting outlooks on life in general. He goes to Burning Man with us every year. <laughs> right um, <laughs> he actually got the cover of National Geographic for the... Um, for the uh, uh, night sky edition that's been reprinted all over the world. Oh, that must um, be where I recognize his name from. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Funny story about that. We we both went out that night and shot together, and uh, he ended up with the cover of National Geographic. <laughs> it was cool. They found him through. Well, he'll tell you the whole story, but the the basic story is that you know they they found him through 500 PX and really? just wanted wanted to license the image for the cover and. Um, you That's know, cool. he glad, gladly obliged and it's been a great thing for him. But yeah, Dude, like Nick's, Nick's a great dude. PX still matters. I guess so. Yeah. I stopped, I stopped on that train a, a long time ago, but yeah, for, I guess, I guess for some people it still matters, you know? I mean, if it gets you the cover of Nat Geo. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <How> can, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't talk it down, I guess, if that's the end result for you. <laughs> right. Uh, anyone else you'd recommend? I know earlier you had mentioned uh, Karen Hutton. She's a Fuji f- shooter. Oh yeah, you should interview Karen. She's just this like super bubbly, funny spirit. I love her to death. She's she's become a really good friend of mine, and we spent a lot of time together out in the field shooting a lot of content for Fuji and stuff. And uh, yeah, she's got a really lot, lot of like really interesting uh, outlooks on life and things like that. So yeah, she'd be she'd be a great interview. Cool. Well, speaking of great interviews, thank you, Justin. This has been a lot of fun, man. 
Yeah, thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate like uh, all the questions and just uh, your open mindedness into the to the whole gear thing. And uh, thanks for letting me uh, speak my voice. Hey, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to letting people hear it. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, thanks for doing this podcast, by the way. Like, I, I I started listening like a few weeks back and just like just binged watched the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah, it's been a fun project for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love to just like kind of set it on my like side screen and just let it play as I'm like editing and stuff. And just, yeah, it's 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 great stuff, man. Uh, keep it up. Well, thanks. All right. Well, thanks to Justin for coming onto the show to share his views with us on photography. I hope he's right about that new Sony a7S III. That sounds amazing. And I want one now. <laughs> that sounds so cool. All right, well, please hang in and listen if you want to hear me thank our supporters, talk about upcoming guests, and explain why we ask for your support on Patreon. So first of all, thanks to Martin Meyer for supporting the podcast at the $5 a month level. I really appreciate it. I ask for your support on Patreon because I really believe in the value for value model to support creators. It's simple. I produce content, you consume it, and hopefully you pay me what you think is worth to you. Hopefully it's worth more than a dollar a month, and if so, please help us out on Patreon. We get over 3,000 downloads a week, and we have about 125 patrons. So if each of you just paid $1 a month, we'd be doing really, really great. Thanks to everyone that has supported us so far. We are really close to our next milestone of $1,000 a month. Once we do hit it, we will be giving away $1,000 to a photographer that has been making a difference in the conservation arena. You're probably also wondering, well, Matt, what about those ads? Well, yes, we do have some quote-unquote ads on the show. They are only for patrons that have, that have services to offer for other photographers. I only support services and people that I believe in. So if I'm doing an ad, it's because that person supports the show and I believe in them just like they believe in me. That's community and collaboration. Okay, now that we've touched on that, I'd like to give a special thanks to the people that are our Patreon podcast producers. These incredible people contribute at $20 a month or higher on Patreon. Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stenslin, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Jason Matias, Anton Everine, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Ken Dono, Danny LeFrancois, James Bakavoy, Matthias at Photomagica, Richard Wong, Kelly Buchelern, Matthew Boone, Zachary Smith, and Gary Randall. Okay, we're doing something new over on Patreon. Patrons of the podcast are encouraged to participate in our themed photo contests by submitting them to the community board on our Patreon page, which can be, which can be found at patreon.com slash fstop and listen slash community. The current theme, which ends June 21st, 2019, is intimate landscapes. Let's see your best intimate landscape photographs. All right, let's talk about our upcoming guests. Let's see here. First, we have Waiho Pan. He is a landscape photographer living in China, which I think is a first for the show. Next, we have Nick Selway, which I hopefully will be sitting down with him in his gallery in Breckenridge, Colorado, this coming week for a chat. Actually, probably yesterday when this comes out. 
We also have David Cobb from Photo Cascadia joining us on the podcast. And lastly, we have a panel conversation with Aaron Reed and Colby Brown to talk all about marketing and business. They will be fielding listener questions, so please keep an eye out for the thread to submit those questions over on NPN. All right. Well, thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.